Turn then, if you will, to Paul's letter to the Philippians as we begin the fourth and final chapter as we will look at verses 1 through 3. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. (coughs) Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the Gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Euodia and Syntyche. They don't roll off the, the tongue so easily, do they? Well, I want to begin this morning, brothers and sisters, by asking you a question in light of what Paul has just said. And the question is this. Do you think that in the church today, a minister could come and stand up in the pulpit before the congregation and publicly rebuke two people by name and that there would not be massive repercussions for him in the process? I don't think he could. I don't think he could. But perhaps he shouldn't. Perhaps that's not a very wise and pastoral thing for one of us to do. But we have to remember that Paul here is speaking as an apostle. And no man in the pulpit today can claim such a thing. And even though saying this, Paul certainly did not make this his practice of rebuking the saints in this manner. But obviously though, in this given situation, he thought that it was most necessary and appropriate. And so I began by asking you this question because I thought it was interesting to see this dynamic that must have existed between Paul and the church here at Philippi. Because actually what Paul demonstrates in his public rebuke of these two women is really high esteem for them. He must have had great respect for these women. He must have thought that they were mature in the Lord. He must have been sure that they would receive this admonition in the way that Paul wanted them to receive it. And that was in love. That was in love. As a brother writing to his sisters. As one laborer writing to his fellow laborers. Desiring that they be reconciled for the sake of Christ and for the church. And what this shows of us, of these two women, in being able to receive the rebuke of Paul like this, even though they're quarreling one with another, is great respect and honor and reverence they had for Paul. It demonstrates their great trust in his wise counsel, as Paul is one that they must have looked up to. If you recall, Paul laid the foundation at the church here in Philippi. And so he would have been one they would have looked up to, as we read in Acts 16. And so as we look carefully at these chosen words Paul uses 
to address the saints here, it is so obvious his motivation for writing them this. It was not anger. It was not malice. Paul wrote them this motivated by love. As we read here in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You see here, brothers and sisters, this is a man who's writing with a heart that is abounding in love. He's not writing to the ungodly. He's not writing to unbelievers. But he's writing to the saints. Remember that he has just finished in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3 telling the saints that as citizens of heaven we are to await the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, He will transform our lowly bodies into His glorious one. And so this is why then he starts verse 1 with, Therefore. Therefore attaches what he just said to what he's going to say. And so this is why he then says, Await your Savior's return as heavenly citizens, but continue then therefore to do what? In verse 1 he says, Continue to stand firm in the Lord. Here Paul's concern is with the perseverance of the saints. And he encourages them to perseverance in the most tender and sweet of language. Calling them those he loves, those he longs for, those who bring him joy and those who are his crown, those who are his beloved. It would seem difficult after reading this introduction to take anything that he says to these two women afterwards as offensive in any way. It would be one thing if Paul opened by just railing on the church, telling them how unfaithful they were, how disappointed he was, how angry he was. And then he turns to these two women and says, now you too, you guys are worst of all. Make up. But this isn't what Paul did, is it? This was not the approach he took. Rather, he tells these women and all the saints of his deep, deep affection he has for them. He loves them. He longs to be near them. He wants to see them. They are those who bring Paul joy. He says they are his crown. Now this language of crown should bring us back to chapter 3, verses 12 and 14 with this racing metaphor that we had there. <coughs> As when a, a sprinter crosses the finish line, they place this crown upon his head, a, a wreath, as he is the victor, he receives this as his prize. And so Paul calls these saints his crown, as they have come to faith under his ministry. And so this is a great cause for joy to Paul. It's confirmation that he didn't labor in vain over them. Right? And so seeing them stand firm in the faith was Paul's prize. It was his crown that he ran well. And so Paul desiring that they would continue to persevere until the end, doesn't want anything to hinder them from reaching that goal. And what is that goal? Remember we said it is that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so he pleads with them. He beseeches them. He urges them from a place of love to agree in the Lord. As Paul's concern is for God's glory. 
It is for the good of the church. And yet he is still concerned for the personal growth of each and every saint. And it is this very love that Paul has for the saints that it caused him to endure all hardship and pain throughout his ministry. It is this love which caused Paul to do all that he did, to be homeless, to be hungry, to go thirsty, to endure beatings and reproach and ridicule, imprisonment and even death. You see, brothers and sisters, love is the preeminent of all virtues as love is the very disposition of the heart. And so, out of love, all that we think, say, and do proceeds forth. And God has acted upon Paul. And God has acted upon each and every one of you here today, if you are a believer, in such a way that now the very frame of your heart is love. And your heart is now inclined to love. Even natural man has the ability to love. Yet, because of the fall, that love has been perverted. right? And now man turns that love inward towards himself, seeking to gratify and satisfy all of his own desires. Yet Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to the saints, knowing they are those who have the ability, who are inclined to love. And so Paul tells them, do the very thing that you are capable of doing. Love one another. For love, Paul knows, must reign. Love must reign in the church for us to look like the church. Because without love, brothers and sisters, you cannot perform the least of your Christian duty. Apart from love, you cannot. And to love is the commandment given to us by Christ, wasn't it? If you remember, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 12, This is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And John in his epistle tells the saints, Oh, you say you love God? Well, if, it is, if you truly love God, do you know what loving God means? It means that you love one another. In 1 John verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 21, he says, And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must love his brother. And so this is really getting at the heart of what Paul is saying here to these two dear sisters in verses 2 and 3. Paul knows that when love reigns in the church, quarreling and bickering and schisms and divisions will disappear. Because love is the very spring by which all other virtue flows. When love reigns in the church, it looks glorious, doesn't it? It is then that the church is arrayed in its beauty. Then and only then does the church look and function as it ought to. And that is after, after the way of our Master, who is Christ. You see, the church is to imitate and to mimic Christ in all of our ways, in all of our dealings with one another. And how is it that Christ dealt with others? He did not repay evil for evil. He looked to the interest of others, counting others more significant than Himself. 
he looked to the good and to the advantage of his neighbor. And so when this love exists, it shows itself then in a multitude of ways. And this morning, we're going to look at three ways in which love manifests itself which are explicit, implicit in our text. As Paul calls upon the saints in the bond of love, as the body of Christ, to express that love in these three ways. He says that this love is expressed in unity, in humility, and in peaceableness. Unity, humility, and peaceableness. And these are so important for the saint to exhibit that we might even call unity, humility, and peaceableness three hallmarks of the true believer. Now a hallmark by definition is a mark that's stamped upon articles of gold or silver or platinum. And what it does is it certifies them as being pure. Right? They are a stamp of authenticity. You know that when you see this brick of gold and it has this mark stamped upon it, that it is truly real, pure gold. And in much the same way, when you see a church filled with saints who exemplify unity, humility, and peaceableness, this likewise is our stamp that authenticates who we are, the body of Christ, as these virtues cannot otherwise be exercised by any other but apart, apart from the Holy Spirit. As it is God who is the source of our unity. And it is in Jesus Christ that this unity amongst the saints exists. This is what Paul says in his appeal to Euodia in Syntyche as Paul calls on them to do this at the end of verse 2, to agree in the Lord. And this unity, which he is calling upon them to exhibit, we have pointed out throughout this letter, has been a central theme that Paul has been harping on, hasn't he, throughout this entire letter. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, brothers and sisters, that unity is the very fruit of love for those of us who love Christ and love His Word. As it is Christ and His Word that are most dear to us and they are so dear to you and I that we do not want to do anything that might injure them. And I tell you, disunity injures them. Disunity dishonors God. As He has gathered us in Christ as this one spiritual community pulled forth out of the world into one body under Christ who is our head. Yet when we bicker and we argue over the frivolous things, we no longer shine as lights in this darkened world. But rather we become 
stumbling blocks before the world. And remember, what was our exhortation from last week from Paul? As citizens of heaven, live as such. We are to adorn heaven here on earth. And as the gathered body, as we are here together to worship our Lord, it is here that we have this foretaste of heaven, we said. And so I ask, will there be disunity in heaven? Can disunity dwell with a holy, eternal, all-glorious God? Of course not. And so this means we as a church must make it our desire to dwell in unity. And how do we do that, you ask? Well, if unity is your desire, then you must pray for unity. What does James say? You have not because you ask not. We must be faithful and we must be earnest in going before the Lord, both corporately and individually, asking and seeking to maintain strength and the unity of Uh, the bond of unity in this church. Also, what we must do is be watchful over our own hearts. You have to ask yourselves in examining your heart, do I have any drops of bitterness or strife that reside? And if they do, you must go before the Lord and confess them. And you must be swift to rid your heart of any initial spark so that they would not pour forth into open flames one day. Because when we allow sin to fester and to boil over, that's what's going to cause the most damage at the end when they explode all of a sudden. So we must be working to put off sin. We must be actively seeking unity. Yet what else does Paul entreat these sisters to? Well, if you want to have unity in the church, And if your desire is personal holiness, which it should be for all of us, you must also adorn yourself with the virtue of humility. Isn't it interesting that throughout this letter, Paul is driving home this point of unity and humility. And it is these two very virtues that these women are guilty of neglecting. And in seeing this, it should be reasonable enough for each one of us to realize that no matter how far mature we think we are, no matter how much knowledge we think we have in the Lord, this should cause us to realize that we never grow out of needing constant reminder to exhibit godliness in every facet of our life. And that means when the minister comes and stands in the pulpit and he preaches something to you, something that maybe you know or something you've heard a hundred times. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. But heed the instruction because we need constant reminder. Because Paul isn't just saying this to these two random people in the church. But he's speaking to these two particular women who he says in verse 3, they actually labored side by side with him in the Gospel. They were good, godly, faithful women in the Lord, and yet they still needed a reminder that they needed to be humble and that they needed to be united. And so this should teach each one of us, minister and lay person alike, that we are not immune 
to the potential of backsliding. Right? Falling into some sin for a season. But this is where humility is so important in the Christian life. Because we can backslide when we become puffed up and we think, that, ah, that won't happen to me. I won't fall into that sin. If you think that somehow you're spiritually superior to others, but rather as Christians, we ought to always be reminding of ourselves of our own sinful capabilities. That we in these mortal bodies struggle with sin and temptation. And the more that we come to understand this, the more we would remind ourselves and realize our own weaknesses and deficiencies, our own sinful capabilities, and then the better off we'll be in guarding against them. Because we won't be deceiving ourselves. And so the more you remind yourself of your own sinful capabilities and your deficiencies, the more you're going to rely upon God. And the less you are going to rely upon your own strength and willpower. Now, what we don't know for certain in the reading of this text is what the particular sin of these two women was. Paul doesn't tell us this. But what's obvious is they did not listen to the instruction of the Apostle. For in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in all humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And so these women, and not counting the other more significant than themselves, exercised selfishness and conceit. They were willing to injure the church and one another for whatever it was they were quarreling about. They were allowing the church and the interests of the church to be put on the back burner because of their own problem they had with one another. Yet how quick it seems they must have forgot what Paul told them about the humility of Christ exhibited in His humiliation which Paul gave them as an example earlier in chapter 2. And that example likewise is for each one of us. And so whatever reason it is you can think to be puffed up in your own mind, or whatever reason it is you feel to be proud or stubborn, or to cause some sort of strife or division in the church, that should immediately be extinguished in light of viewing what Christ did on our behalf. Christ, the only Son of God, light from light, true God from true God, took on flesh to suffer the pains of death for you and I, for our forgiveness of sin, that we would not perish as was our just punishment. And it is this humility that Christ displayed that Paul tells each one of us, this is the mind we are to have. Yet do we still look to exalt ourselves above another? Remember, God opposes the proud and He gives grace to the humble. Remembering that it is God who calls us to love our neighbor. And so in comparing yourself to your neighbor to protect against the sin of pride, we have to always think of ourselves as less and our neighbor as more. Wilhelmus Abrakel says this in comparing yourself to someone else. He says, in your own eyes, appear as copper 
and your neighbor gold. Think of yourself as lead and think of your neighbor as silver. Imagine, brothers and sisters, what the church would look like if we actually practiced that. It would be a great and glorious God-exalting thing for the eye to behold. But instead, we desire our own glory, don't we? We want things done our way. We want to be right. We want others to see what we're doing for the church. We want man to pat us on the back and say, good job. But this should not be the aim of the Christian. The Christian should be all right. We should be fine with going throughout the entirety of our life having no recognition for what we've done if it means that God is glorified. If instead of you being exalted before men for your hard work, it means that God is exalted. And so we see that if love reigns in the church, humility and unity will follow. And if unity and humility follow, so too will peaceableness. Wilhelm Sabrakel, turning to him once again, defines peaceableness as this. It is a believer's quiet and contented disposition of the soul, inclining him toward and causing him to strive for the maintaining of a relationship with his neighbor, characterized by sweet unity, doing so in a way of truth and godliness. You see, brothers and sisters, peaceableness should be the goal we have with all men. We should be seeking peace with all men, but most especially with the saints. And what this means, though, is that we must strive within this church to live harmoniously with one another. As you recall, we serve a God who is the very God of peace. Christ is what? He is the very Prince of Peace. We have been given the very Spirit of Peace so that you and I may live in peace reflecting the very character of God. And being Christ, we now have this peace internally. Right? We have peace of conscience, knowing that we are in right standing before God, but also this is a peace we have externally. A peace that we are now enabled to have one to another. And so we must always be seeking this peace and maintaining this peace within the fellowship. Alright, this is the very thing Paul calls upon the saints to exhibit in verse 3. Paul says, Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the Gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul is asking that there is peace being kept and that this peace being kept is something that the entire church is engaged in. Paul asks others, help restore the peace. And so we must as a church ask ourselves, are we peacemakers? Are we peacemakers? When a brother or sister comes up to you with a problem that they're having with someone else, and they tell you, them, and they say, tell you about them, do you help your brother 
and give them good advice? Or do you pour more gasoline on top of it only to exacerbate the problem? When they come before you and say, hey, I'm having this problem with this brother or sister, do you say, yeah, I can't stand that person. You know, they did the same thing to me. You know what you ought to do? You ought to go and give them a piece of your mind. Tell them off. Tell them what you really feel. But this is not to be the response of a child of God. This isn't the response or the advice we are to give a brother or sister. What is it that Jesus says? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so, brothers and sisters, it is your duty not only to be at peace with all men, but it likewise is your duty to restore the peace between the saints. This is what Paul is asking the church to do. These two women, for some reason, are fighting. And they've gotten to the point in which they aren't willing to reconcile it between themselves. And so Paul asked the church, come on guys, fellow laborers, step in and help reconcile these two women one to another. Because disruption between members in the church is a stain on the church. When disruption occurs, we look just like the world. We look and act like the fool when we quarrel. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6 says this, A fool's lips walks into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. And then in verse 7, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. But you know what, brothers and sisters? This describes one who has the spirit of this world. One who is puffed up with conceit. One who is earthly minded. But you, brothers and sisters, you have a spirit not of this world, but you have the spirit which comes from God. One who imparts wisdom to the believer. A wisdom that James says in chapter 3, verse 17. Our wisdom is from above. And it is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the wisdom we receive from Christ. A wisdom that is peaceable. I mean, think about it, brothers and sisters. Paul even says in Galatians 6 that the Gospel is a Gospel of peace. And so when peace is not maintained within the church, it hinders the Gospel. And shouldn't it be our goal to help in the spread and the growth of the Gospel? And not to cause it to be hindered and blasphemed because of us? We should, like the psalmist say, Behold, how good and how pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. And so that means we must always be reminded to be least in our minds. If we are wrong, we are to endure. We are to be quick to forgive. We are not to grow weary in doing good to others. For great is the reward for us who await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ if we persevere unto the end. And if you are His, you will, by the power of God. For it is the Lord who will bring all those who are His unto completion. 
For he tells us at the end of verse 3, it is we who have our names etched in the very book of life. And so we have seen throughout this letter, Paul has encouraged the saints to live as saints, to press on in the Christian life, to endure conflict and suffering, to live as citizens of heaven. And Paul has told us how this is exercised in the church. And we need this reminder for the church is far from perfect. We are far from perfect. And so Paul says that for the church, love must reign. Yet this love isn't something Paul just tells us to do, but he actually put it on display in his life and in the words which he spoke and wrote to the saints. It is Christ. It is His Gospel. It is the church that are the concerns here of Paul. This is why he writes to these women to agree. Because Paul knows that when love reigns, the church is radiant and most beautiful. It is a body then that is united, that is humble, and that is at peace. And when we are being the church, and when these three hallmarks of true believers are exhibited in the church. It is at this time that God is most glorified. It is at this time that the church can be most beneficial. And it is at this time that you and I are most nourished to the very depths of our souls. And so this ought to be our aim and our prayer. And so please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me as we pray before God for these very things. Heavenly Father, as we approach Your throne of grace, we come before You, Lord, seeking greater unity, humility, and peace within this church and within the church universal. Father, for these things are glorious and they cause the church to be radiant and beautiful and most desirable for all to see. And so, Father, we ask that You would increase these things in the church that You would give us a desire to strive after these things in our own life. Lord, that you, would, uh, that You would grant to us a desire to flee all disunity, to flee any urge to be proud within our members, to flee anything that would cause uh, unrest within the church, that we would desire and we would have the same concern that Paul has, that our concern would be for Your glory, for the good of the church, and for the benefit of each, of each and every saint here, that we would grow and be conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we come before You this day. We ask, Lord, that You would accept these prayers that pour forth out of the lips of Your people, Lord, that they would be acceptable in Your sight. And we ask all this in Your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.